Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Kai Bosworth, author of Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century, published this year by University of Minnesota Press. Dr. Bosworth, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Certainly, yeah. I uh, have a much longer story um, to answer this question uh, that I could tell, Uh, but for the sake of uh, brevity, this book really has its origins in in two aspects of uh, who I am and uh, how I came to be a geographer. On the one hand, in the early 2000s, I was a part of what we called at that time the youth climate movement. Um, As a college student, I was really concerned with uh, climate change when I first heard about it, as many young people are uh, today as well, um, and uh, began to politically organize on my campus um, and outside of uh, campus politics to try to get some sort of meaningful climate action um, on the table at the state, federal, uh, and international level. Um, And we did lots of good work at that time. Um, We stopped a coal plant in uh, Minnesota, um, and it seemed like after the election of Barack Obama that climate change legislation might happen. Um, And it turns out that it didn't. Um, And uh, around 2009, a lot of us who were a part of that youth climate movement for a few years uh, really felt we were at an impasse and there was something wrong with our strategy, our calculus of power, um, and maybe even our our goals of simply producing climate legislation in order to produce climate justice. Uh, that we needed to reevaluate. So that impasse was really important for me for another reason, because I, uh, of course, there's a financial crisis. Um, I was in debt from college. And uh, so I simply decided to uh, go to grad school as a way of not paying back that debt um, and continuing the kind of organizing questions, uh, political organizing uh, that I wanted to do around uh, the problem of the climate crisis. Um, and so it turns out that uh, around that period of time, a new sort of movement was growing uh, in uh, the Great Plains and the Dakotas and Nebraska in opposition to the Keystone XL uh, pipeline expansion project. Uh, So the second real origin of this book is the fact that uh, the place where I grew up was Western South Dakota, the landscape um, that I study and and the the sort of social relations that I talk about in the book um, are really uh, on the table for me um, as well. And so um, I started to go back to South Dakota and poke around um, eventually, uh, when developing my dissertation topic, the, the sort of portion of it about it was 
pipelines really took over the entire project um, as things got bigger and bigger, uh, exploded, took different forms and whatnot. And so um, that eventually became uh, my dissertation in this book, investigating uh, what I describe as the, the sort of populist portion of the opposition to Keystone XL and later the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, in primarily in South Dakota. Okay, so that's a, a nice bridge into my first question that I have, which is that you describe this populism as a, a political genre. So what defines populism as a genre and how is that different from other genres of environmental activism? Yeah, so I like to think of populist environmentalism as a genre because it helps us in some ways not worry so much about defining it as a certain kind of political movement that has X, Y, and Z characteristics, uh, but instead a kind of loose uh, form of rhetoric and performance that sets expectations about uh, what one is going to encounter in uh, this particular kind of, of or style of political movement. And so populism is, in short, just a kind of politics which uh, imagines the people to be the primary political subject, uh, and the people are pitted against a kind of elite or a small group of of others who have in some ways stolen or corrupted democracy um, and taken the power to make decisions about our uh, our social and political lives uh, away from the, the sort of proper authors of politics, the people. And so, um, in, you know, there's all kinds of debates about populism and political science and history and whatever, which try to um, nail down its its specific features, and I, I kind of describe it as a genre simply because it helps us think about how uh, folks who participate in this kind of rhetoric might not may or may not describe themselves as populists. They may or not may not um, have every sort of feature of any given definition of populism. Um, but certain sorts of expectations and feelings are associated with it. The feeling of, of woundedness, the desire to reclaim democracy, um, and several of the other sort of relationships I describe in the book. Now, I think it's important to really think about populist environmentalism because environmentalism and environmental action in, uh, in North America has really been critiqued heavily for its history of elitism. Uh, so we can think of all different historical examples of this, and it's probably going to be familiar to uh, any listeners who are geographers or interested in environmental politics, um, the, the different ways that, uh, that environmentalism, certain forms of environmentalism have existed to shore up um, a certain kind of elite access to natural spaces um, or to the decision-making processes that govern uh, environmental impacts or environmental degradation and the like. And so 
uh, a sort of populist environmentalism is in many ways emerges uh, in opposition to an elitism within environmentalism, I argue. Um, the, the sort of form of technocratic um, policymaking that was ascendant, especially in the 1990s and associated with um, the sort of neoliberal consensus, let's say. Um, but these two, of course, aren't the only sorts of genres of environmentalism. Uh, of course, there's environmental justice politics. There's um, uh, politics that, uh, you know, of, of indigenous decolonization. Um, there's radical, different sorts of radical environmentalisms, um, you know, socialism, anarchism, direct action politics, and the like. And so just fitting populist environmentalism in this field of discourses about uh, climate change and uh, opposition to fossil fuel extraction, I think is really clarifying. Um, for It's been clarifying for me anyway, because it helps me see um, how, how populist environmentalism gets some things right and still has some sort of limitations to it. Um, and uh, I can certainly go into more detail about that um, as our conversation continues, I think. Yeah, that'll definitely be a theme that we return to. Uh, but before we get there, who are the people that are getting involved in these populist environmental movements? Like who who is this uh, populism appealing to and, and drawing into these fights over these pipelines? Yeah, so I, I sort of think of the populist portion of pipeline opposition as uh, consisting of a few different tendencies within American um, and Great Plains sort of uh, political life. So um, there's just people, you know, uh, I describe a, a lot of my interviews were with uh, landowners whose land would have been crossed by the pipeline, um, regular sort of uh, citizen activists, uh, folks who might not have ever been involved in politics before, um, or who might not see this as um environmentalism even um so at at the very heart of it is is you know these kinds of uh folks um but they're also community organizer community organizers and organizations um nonprofits uh who describe themselves as populist um in some kind of ways um and uh, there's various different kinds of people who are interested in environmental, in sort of traditional environmental concerns, you know, uh, folks who have been involved in things like the Audubon Society or Sierra Club and the like. Um, and crucially for the story I tell, I'm, I'm really interested in um, the fact that most of these f- people are s- settlers, are non-Indigenous um, in this region, most of them are descendants um, from uh, European settlers to uh, this region. And so I'm kind of interested in how uh, the their sort of assembly into an identity as the people um, 
grapples with uh, or doesn't grapple with that sort of uh, concern around uh, diversity and representation. Okay, so then the theoretical frame that you bring to all this uh, combines ideas from Spinoza and from Marx. So what are you taking from each of those thinkers and how are you putting that together? Yeah, so those are really um, the two big thinkers that have shaped how I have, have approached this um, this problem. Um, and so from Spinoza, uh, it, there's a lot we can say uh, about his, his work, um, but I think the most important thing is that Spinoza is a thinker of affect, um, of emotion, uh, and a thinker of how affect and emotion emerges uh, from collectives and in collectives and a thinker of how affect and emotion when emerging in collectives uh, transforms the power of those collectives, either by growing it or diminishing it. And so um, as a sort of baseline framework, I've found this sort of architecture of Spinoza's account of emotional life uh, to be really, really helpful to put in the context of political organizing and really thinking about how certain kinds of emotions um, emerge from uh, history, from people's relationships with land and landscape, um, and from their organization in spaces like uh, public meetings and protests and the like. Um, and that the, the emotions that emerge aren't just... Um, happenstance, um, but they're indexes of changes in power, of whether people are feeling empowered to uh, to perform political action or alternatively feeling disempowered or constrained um, by the political fields that they encounter. Uh, nonetheless, I think that it's really, really important to connect um, Spinoza and Marx um, principally around, uh, for me, this question of under what conditions do people um, become politicized or choose to rebel or in what situations do they not? Do they um, become disengaged in, in politics? Um, so I'm interested in um, Marx as a as a theorist of politics um, who understands the way that capitalism writ large um, conditions what and and sort of sets um, sets limits on um, or tries to set limits on how people come to engage in in politics. Of course, the the, the sort of big overarching reason why I think it's necessary to bring Marx into the conversation, especially in the time of climate crisis, is that um, one of the ways that capitalism conditions the kinds of politics that are emerging is through the sort of global planetary um, ecological destruction that, uh, that, you know, things like the fossil fuel industry um, and its sort of uh, exploitative 
relations with both nature and workers um, and uh, those who experience the brunt of pollution and the like is really, really um, crucial and inextricable. Um, but at a much more precise level, I'm really interested in considering the resonances between a sort of Spinoza's theory of affect and political organizing um, and the long tradition of, uh, of those who have used Marx's work to think about how, uh, how and under what conditions political transformation could happen. Okay, so then let's kind of get down into the the nitty gritty of what you found uh, in studying these uh, anti pipeline populist movements. So I want to start with one of the questions that you kind of pose to yourself in in the book, which is why do people continue to take part in these official public participation forums, like public hearings and stuff, uh, when they recognize how little effect uh, these things can have and, and how useless they can be as a, a channel for kind of real democracy? Yeah, I, I just became so fascinated with um, the the sort of public comment session or public participation meeting as a, as an emotionally charged site of um, testimony and witnessing uh, that simply appears to be a kind of facsimile of democracy happening. You know, um, we have everyone. Uh, sort of participating, being heard by a, a, um, a federal or state level uh, decision making body, and yet these comments sort of go into the void. Um, you, you know, there's no, there's no way it seems like in which a, a public comment that says we don't want this pipeline can actually be heard by sort of official um, institutional uh, environmental and and uh, infrastructure permitting uh, bodies. And so I sort of approached these, these scenes then um, and, and people who take part in them um, with, uh, a, with this question in mind, why, why do people participate um, is it just that they're sort of duped by like a fantasy that this is democracy? Um, ultimately, I, I don't think that's a very satisfying answer. Um, in fact, when I talked to people who, to both uh, participants and organizers, um, they almost you know universally said, "We don't really think that this matters. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna try as hard as we can um, to convince." you know, say the Public Utilities Commission that uh, this pipeline shouldn't be permitted, but we don't really think this this place is where transformation is going to happen. And so if that's the case, then the question becomes sort of why do, why do people um, continue to participate? And so m- my sort of answer is that uh, that one of the emotions that binds or attaches people to these sorts of performances of, of public comments um, is called, uh, I call res- a sort of resigned pragmatism um, in which it's seen to be pragmatic to at least try to participate 
um, to at least uh, get one's comment on the official public record. Um, but folks are really resigned to the fact that this isn't um, actually, you know, this isn't actual democracy. This isn't real um, democratic action. Um, and so another way of, of thinking about then what happens and why people are attached to this sort of, these sorts of scenes and, and public comment sessions is that it's not about the actual, um, about actually getting the institution to change, but it's as much about um, building the sort of collective identity and confidence and, um, and sort of seeing the fact that it's not real democracy that needs to happen for uh, a sort of group to form and cohere and then perhaps move beyond that sort of form of politics um, to do other things. So you can imagine, um, you know, for someone who might be, say, a, a settler, landowner, um, having a pipeline cross their property, uh, this is not, you know, your... Um, you know, someone who maybe has been involved in protest or political activism for decades, right? Um, so getting up and testifying uh, might be the first public speaking they've ever done, um, even if it's only for three minutes, um, you know, the, the sort of rhetoric and, um, and action of giving public testimony really changes people. Um, and so while they, they might experience that uh, specific space um, and be attached to it as a form of resigned pragmatism, um, they might also overcome that feeling by, uh, by growing their confidence as, uh, and commitment to pipeline opposition, um, becoming connected with others um, and deciding to move on to another sphere. Um, yeah, and so it's it's. I want to just underline for one second how much uh, how how emotionally saturated public comment meetings are, um, and the way that the institutions are of public participation are designed to um, to attenuate and discount that emotionality, um, which I think is really kind of cruel that people pour their hearts out in these meetings um, and it just gets turned into a transcript. Um, the transcript um, gets chopped up into um, a series of response forms um, and the, the permitting agency says, well, this concern you have is not, not a real concern or is addressed in the environmental impact statement or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, from their, uh, from their perspective, that's democracy at work. Um, and so I'm trying to really be true to the fact that like, um, what goes on in these meetings is like, uh, is sort of gut wrenching. Um, and it, it was gut wrenching for me to, to witness and participate in. Um, and so that chapter sort of tries to, uh, articulate you know, all of the contradictions and, and possibilities that might emerge out of these scenes. Yeah, I've been to some of those kind of uh, 
meetings more around the issue of fracking rather than pipelines because of where I live. And you're you're absolutely right about the kind of the like emotional whiplash that that comes from you know the contrast between how people are trying to to speak about things and then how that gets reduced into the the bureaucratic reporting of it. Yeah, and if I can just add one other example, because I just think it's kind of funny. Um, there's a way that this all connects back to a certain kind of anti-populism that exists in sort of liberal institutions. Um, the example that I think of, and you can search on YouTube to find this video, um, is from the television show Parks and Rec, which is sort of about, um, of course, a, a kind of a administrative a park body in a small town in Indiana, right? And so you can see this video that's called Citizens of Pawnee or something where it's all the public, um, public a compilation of all the public meetings that uh, exist in the TV show. And um, again, it's funny. It's meant to be satire. Um, but everyone who stands up, you know, they're, it's like a, a review meeting for some regulatory action to put a park bench in and people are complaining about something entirely different. Um, their complaints are completely irrational. They're depicted as like uh, totally unhinged from reality that the regular citizens are. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of like one of the ways that a certain version or understanding of democracy has understood itself as uh, necessary to separate um, the people from uh, institutional technocratic decision making bodies. Um, so yeah. All right. Uh, so then another theme that runs through a lot of your book is the relationship between these you know, white settler populists and the uh, indigenous groups that are involved in the, the anti-pipeline movement and that you know play a really prominent role in the, the broader public understanding, um, you know, especially uh, with things like the Standing Rock water, pro, uh, water protectors and stuff. Um, so can you talk a bit about the, the sort of uneasy relationship between the, the settler and indigenous uh participants in the, the anti-pipeline movement and kind of the, the ways that it can, you know, either reinforce or break through the kind of settler colonial framework. Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, I think that um, both in uh, popular media as well as in the sort of accounts of people like Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben, uh, the alliance between indigenous uh, water protectors um, and uh, non-native settlers, um, oftentimes depicted in, as the cowboy and through the historic relationship with the cowboy and Indian alliance, um, is seen to be this kind of like new force um, for climate justice, a way of breaking beyond the kind of, uh, you know, either identity politics or kind of um, uh, whitewashed environmentalism or something like that. Um, 
and I think that there there's some truth to that that sort of romantic story, but it also um, is a narrative that um, moves very quickly past a lot of the real on the ground work that had to be done by political organizers in order to develop uh, the kind of terms of uh, you know forms of relationship, the terms of engagement, the the sorts of um, uh, and sorts of spaces where settler and indigenous people could agree to sort of come together. And so a lot of this has to do with, and the reason why I, I bring it up in the book so frequently is a lot of this has to do with the politics, um, the political horizon that each of these different groups imagines and uh, the ways in which the they might still be at odds. Um, so for um, Native nations, um, the reasons for opposing the pipeline are um, connected to uh, longstanding opposition to settler colonialism, um, to not just resource extraction, um, but also uh, sovereignty and control of the land um, in this particular region, uh, which... Um, in, in this case, the Achete Shikoi Nuyate have uh, legal claims through the treaties that uh, they signed with the U.S. federal government uh, in the 1800s um, to the land through which um, these pipelines uh, were supposed to run. Um, and so uh, the political horizon, you know, without sort of reducing, without trying to reduce um indigenous politics too, because there's a lot of different things going on here. Um, But certainly the political horizon is one um, that's radically anti-colonial and transformative um, in, uh, in nature. Um, Whereas for some landowners at the very least, um, all that they, you know, they're opposing the pipeline, um, but what they're desiring is really just a return is not a transformation. It's a return to, the status quo or sort of some imagined um, nostalgic past in which they had control over their private property, over their land, rather than some, um, you know, multinational corporation or government outsider seemingly um, uh, impinging upon it. And so um, those are, those are two different um, orienting, um, frameworks that if they are to, you know, work together might produce some, some friction. Um, and this isn't to say that alliances are impossible or undesirable, but simply to show that like, um, the sort of assumption of one sort of reading of this as a populist mobilization that brought together folks under a common, um, rejection of the pipeline and thus, you know, now, um, now we have a a sort of politics of climate justice in South Dakota of all places. Um, I think that that moves too quickly through some of the details Um, and the details matter um, because if you miss them, then you kind of, this, the story could be turned into one that, um, that says all we really need to do is focus on this, you know, the rhetoric of the people, 
um, and defense of the land uh, without ever really thinking about whether the defense of the land um, is about defending private property, um, defending you know state regulatory uh, decision making bodies, um, or whether defense of the land means you know decolonization um, and uh, recognition of the fact that this land is still indigenous land uh, properly speaking. Um, and so, um, so it's, it's a tough line to walk where I'm, I'm trying to both, um, attend to the transformative possibilities while also thinking about what are the potential limits, um, or, or limitations of a sort of populist environmentalism if it doesn't, uh, or can't take into account um, the broader long-term horizon of indigenous struggle. So I want to move now into asking you a bit about the research process uh, behind the book. So you based it mostly on interviews and participant observation that you did with the, the participants in these um, movements. And you, you describe it as, as being something kind of distinct from your involvement as an activist in uh, some of these causes. So what was the, the research process like doing this, uh, you know, interviewing participant observation and kind of uh, keeping that distinction between your, your kind of research work and your activist work? Yeah, so the, a lot of the research that went into this book uh, took place between 2012 and 2016 or so. Uh, and so I, as you mentioned, I conducted interviews with organizers, landowners, um, pipeline opponents. Um, I read through the transcripts of meetings that I was unable to attend. Um, there's just a a whole slew, thousands upon thousands of, of pages of, of documents. Um, and I went to a lot of collective events, given that, you know, my sort of um, uh, theoretical position suggests that emotions emerge in collectives um, and, and cohere them, going to public meetings, protests, cookouts, concerts, um, and the like was really, really important to developing the, the sort of story and perspective on, uh, on the populist portion of pipeline opposition that I, I sort of describe in the book. Um, and it was important for me to tell these people, you know, that I was, I am opposed to these pipelines, right? Um, it was, it, you know, um, a lot of folks wouldn't have talked to me if I was simply a journalist or, I mean, I was even some, some people thought I, you know, might be working for the oil companies and so I, or being paid by them to like snoop on them or something like that. So I, I did have to have some, some sort of bona fides, um, some sort of demonstration of, of my opposition and, and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, I think that I didn't want you know, this is a political book, but I didn't want or didn't imagine that the interviews I was doing um, 
were a sort of direct and immediate contribution to pipeline opposition. And uh, my sort of direct and immediate contribution to pipeline opposition, I didn't want to think of as um, part of the research process. I didn't want to be doing, you know, when, when the Standing Rock blockade was happening, um, and I was there, I didn't want to be thinking of myself as a researcher. I wanted to be someone who is there trying to figure out, you know, what the, the strategies and tactics we could take and what I can, could, could contribute to trying to stop this pipeline from, from happening. Um, and so that separation is maybe different than from some folks who are scholar activists. Um, but it's one that was important for me um, and, and sort of for my understanding of political epistemology, let's say, um, in making sure that what I was, you know, the story that I'm trying to say, tell and the interviews and research that I'm con conducting um, was true to... Uh, the movement and the, the problems that pipeline opposition face um, without being a kind of like academic uh, dismissal or, um, or simply a sort of extraction of uh, time and effort uh, away from the movement itself. So I think that there, you know, there are, certainly politics in this book and, and of writing this book um, and contributions that I want it to make. But I also, you know, my position is that it's conditioned, my writing is conditioned by my participation in these movements. Well, it's that full participation is also not in the book. Um, and sort of, this is just a, a portion of my, um, you know, of, of my actions uh, taken to, try to stop this pipeline and not to make it sound like I'm, I was, you know, doing something um, totally radical or, or, you know, out of bounds or something. It's, you know, washing dishes um, and preparing meals at a blockade, um, you know, is just not something that I wanted to <laughs> write about necessarily. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I think we've given our listeners a, a pretty good taste of what this book has in store for them. So to wrap up our interview, we always like to ask what you're working on next. Yeah, so I'm still, I've still been writing a couple of different um, articles that have to do with uh, pipeline politics. Um, you know, this book is about, um, about the sort of populist portion of pipeline opposition, um, and I have a couple of book chapters coming out that are about other aspects of the struggle against the pipelines, um, about the police, uh, about legislation that tries to um, stop uh, protests from happening or chill, chill blockades and opposition. Um, and then, you know, one of the, the things that I'm returning to in a project that um, is quite a bit different than... Then this one, um, my, my sort of next big project is thinking about the environmental politics of the underground and subterranean spaces. Um, so there's, you know, some of this in this book um, where I'm talking about 
what actually has to happen to put a pipe, you know, a pipeline six feet underground and what sorts of relationships with soil, uh, water, aquifers, um, different sorts of understandings of property and the like are affected uh, in that um, in that process. And my next project really start takes a step back and thinks through a few different um, uh, places around the United States where the underground has become a site of contention. Uh, and the reason why I'm really interested in this is because conventional environmentalism is oftentimes predicated on, you know, experience of outdoor spaces um, or some sort of uh, phenomenological relationship to um, to nature or the natural world that we're dependent on. Um, and the underground is inaccessible for the most part. Uh, it's not necessarily alive uh, in the way that an ecosystem is. And yet I still think it's really important and, and um, crucial uh for us to think about um, in understanding different sorts of environmentalist or other relationships with the earth. Um, and so my next project is going to, to visit a, a couple of different places and ask, you know, ask these people, why do you care about the underground, essentially, um, and try and think about why is it that so many people and how, is, how does it come to be that so many people care about this place um, that's inaccessible, um, invisible, um, and yet still meaningful for their lives in some way? All right. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'll definitely be looking forward to seeing uh, the results of that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to hear from listeners and others who are going to respond to this book's arguments. You just heard a conversation with Kai Bosworth, author of Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century, published this year by University of Minnesota Press.